This is episode 14 of Ethics and Culture Cast from the Notre Dame Center for Ethics and Culture. Welcome to episode 14 of Ethics and Culture Cast from the Notre Dame Center for Ethics and Culture. I'm Ken Hellenius, the communications specialist at the center. In this episode, we sit down with Mary Eberstadt, a senior fellow at the Faith and Reason Institute. She was at Notre Dame to deliver a center-sponsored talk entitled The Prophetic Power of Humanae Vitae in honor of the encyclical's 50th anniversary. In our conversation, we discuss the prescient vision of Pope Paul VI, how the sexual revolution has become a religion unto itself, and how she sees signs in the culture that give her hope for renewal. Let's head into the Marian Short Ethics Library for this week's conversation. I'm here today with Mary Eberstadt. Mary is a senior fellow of the Faith and Reason Institute and the author of several best-selling books, including Adam and Eve After the Pill, 2013, and How the West Really Lost God, 2014. Her dark comedy novel, The Loser Letters, chronicling the conversion of a young adult Christian to atheism, was adapted into a stage play in 2016. Eberstadt's writing has appeared in Time, The Wall Street Journal, The Washington Post, National Review, First Things, The Weekly Standard, TheCatholicThing.org, and other publications. She was on campus to speak about the prophetic power of Humanae Vitae in honor of the 50th anniversary of Pope Paul VI's landmark encyclical on human life. Mary, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Ken. So tell us a bit about yourself. What are your intellectual interests? Well, my vocation is as a wife and mother uh, and has been for some time, but I've also felt called to write since I was uh, very small. And I've written in a lot of different genres and covered a lot of different issues. And what's happened over the last 10 years especially, uh, actually ever since I first wrote about Humanae Vitae on the 40th anniversary, is that I've become increasingly convinced that the sexual revolution really is the formative revolution of our time, that nothing compares to its transformative effects on humanity, both microscopic in the sense of how ordinary people live their lives all over the world in ways that are very different from the way humanity lived up until now, and also macrocosmically. That is to say, I think this revolution is transforming the world of politics. Um, It's transforming demography, governments, Mm -hmm. and it's increasingly a factor in just about every significant area of life. So what I've been trying to do is connect the dots in different ways, including through fiction, and to look at this lumbering thing that is in many ways devastating the human landscape. And so for that reason, I feel particularly called to try and, I hope, deliver some clarity on what's going on out there uh, when it comes to the fallout of the revolution. I'm interested because you kind of talk about even using fiction. I mean, the 
work that you've written, for example, the how the West really lost God, you you are able to you know work in sociological data, historical kind of reflection, and then to the loser letters, which is more of a narrative. And when you work in these different genres. Is it because you're thinking about your audience or is it because you've been thinking about the question in a different way or what what motivates your writing? I'm that? trying to get at the truth in any way that it can be excavated. And one thing I think is particularly interesting is Pope Francis's emphasis on realities. He doesn't say exactly that scholarly abstractions are bad. Mm-hmm. He just says that they have to be taken into account with human realities. It's mm-hmm. a constant refrain of his. And in the case of the novel, The Loser Letters, that is actually what I was trying to do, because at that time, the new atheism was at its height, mm-hmm. and there were a lot of books on both sides of the argument, for God and against God. And I felt like there was space in there to create a story and to say, let's stop talking about theodicy and all of these abstractions. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but what if we were to examine the fallout of the sexual revolution through the life of one young woman? What would that look like? And so I put her in a rehab center and uh, added uh, her writing letters to the new atheists and the plot unfolds and we get the story of her life. But the point was to try and get at the truth about how we live and how damaging it is in many ways um, without using the facts and figures that might put people off. Because Mm -hmm. I think what we have learned is that there's so much repercussion out there of this revolution that it can be measured in different ways. We can measure it empirically, We can measure it morally. We can measure it by telling stories. And I think it's important to do that in any way that will resonate with some people out there. Well, you've been here on campus today to speak about the prophetic power of Humanae Vitae, building upon an essay of yours published in the April 2018 First Things, and further recalling a piece, as you mentioned, that you wrote 10 years ago on the 40th anniversary of the document. Where, in your view, is prophetic power in the soon-to-be saint, Pope Paul VI's letter. I remember the first time I read that document, I had the eeriest feeling because what I was seeing was that that document predicted things that would happen that it couldn't possibly have known or that no one could have known at the time. And that's part of the prophetic power is that Things that couldn't have been known have come true nonetheless. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about a few of them. The document worried that once contraceptives were in widespread circulation, then maybe coercive governments would be tempted to use these things coercively. This was before the one-child policy in China that's Mm -hmm. been so barbaric, uh, the forced abortions, the sterilizations, all as part of that policy. There have been experiments... Uh, along similar lines in India and in other places that I get into uh, in the 40th anniversary essay. And there have also been instances in the United States, for example, where in a much softer kind of coercion, judges have made lighter sentencing contingent on getting Norplant or other Mm long-term contraceptives in convicted women. Clearly coercive. Now, Some of these technologies didn't even exist when Humanae Vitae was published, and yet that part of the prediction came true. 
And so, I think, have other parts. And what's really fascinating to me is that it's not theology or philosophy that is vindicating this document. It's the accumulation of empirical fact. Again, another prediction. Pimane Vitae warned that if contraceptives came into wide circulation, there would be a lessening of respect for women by men. Because as economists have explained, the sexual marketplace became flooded with available partners, and that reduced the incentive for anybody to settle down with anybody else. There have been numerous analyses by blue-chip economists and other social scientists showing how the entire field of romantic expectation was changed by the birth control pill and the consequences of that. So again, here we have a case where the document makes a prediction and a lot of people at the time rolled their eyes, um, perhaps understandably because they couldn't see the evidence to come. But now we're living in the era of hashtag me too. We're living in an era when the idea that a lot of men out there have no respect for women is no longer controversial even among secular people. So even though hardly anyone saw it coming, the world that Humanae Vitae predicted is the world that we have now, and we have it on account of the fact that a lot of people have turned their back on that Christian moral teaching. Well, what does Humanae Vitae have to offer those outside the fold of the Catholic Church? Are the qualms against contraception merely a Catholic thing? That is a great question, Kent. This is another thing that has become clearer with time. So at the same time that you have a lot of Catholics increasingly wishing these teachings would go away, um, something more interesting has happened, which is over the last couple of decades, and especially because of the obvious connection between contraception and abortion, you have leading Protestants in the United States and other people who are not Catholics, publicly rethinking Humanae Vitae and its related teachings, publicly rethinking something that most Protestants took for granted in 1968, which was that, you know, contraception would be okay. A lot of people thought that this would be an aid to marriage. A lot of people thought it would empower women. They didn't see the skyrocketing rates of divorce, cohabitation, and abortion all to come. Well, now that we have that evidence, you have leading thinkers like Albert Moeller of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary and a number of other high-profile speakers who I mentioned by name, all of them saying, you know, we think the Catholics got something right here because we see in retrospect now, given the damage out there, that this isn't just some Catholic thing, that there is a relationship between your anthropological understanding of human life and the teaching about the connection among all of these uh, moral goods having to do with reproduction. So I think it's very encouraging and an under-attended story that this rethinking is going on. And to sound one positive note, I think what you're seeing is that the more tradition-minded Protestants uh, and Catholics are coming together over this thing that divided them for so long. Now, it's ironic that you're seeing this happen at the same moment when some in the Catholic Church want to soft-pedal these very teachings. Yeah. 
But over time, I see in this, and by over time, I mean like a long time, a possible source of unity and a bringing together of Protestant and Catholic in a way that many religious leaders have dreamed of but haven't had the common ground for before. You've described the sexual revolution as a new quasi-religious orthodoxy, as you called it in National Review, uh, one that holds up all forms of consensual sexual activity as sacrosanct and that proposes contraception and abortion as non-negotiable goods. How did this secular faith, which stands in clear opposition to Judeo-Christian culture, how did it take root and spread in what, what seems to be such a short time? We have to understand that humanity is up against a very powerful force, maybe even the most powerful collective temptation humanity has ever faced around the world, and that is the promise of sex without consequence. Really, what could be more fun than that? And the result is that we've had a great big global party going for a long time, And it's gotten to the point where it's a party like other parties. It's out of control. It's the middle of the night. A lot of people are getting hurt. And nobody really knows what to do about it. Nobody knows how to blow the whistle. I think this is where we are with the sexual revolution. And that the first step to understanding what's happened out there is to understand just how powerful this temptation is, which I think it's easy for all of us to understand. Uh, The next thing is to understand the way it is disfiguring a lot of our politics. A lot of what is called secularist progressivism today is about nothing but the sexual revolution. We've seen this in the women's marches on Washington, for example. We see it in the way that faithful Catholics are often treated in the public square when they rise to prominence. We see it in the double standard applied to faithful Catholics. They can be mocked as others cannot. I think only the Mormons can be mocked as much as the faithful Catholics (laughs) and the conservative evangelicals. Um, The point is that it is disfiguring the polity out there. And what people don't realize is that what's going on isn't just a question of there are people with religious faith on one side and people of no faith on the other. No, what's going on is that there are two different faiths. One is based on the traditional books of the Bible and others, and the other is this new secularist faith that has sexual pleasure as its highest good to be protected at all costs, and this is why the other side won't backtrack on abortion, they won't backtrack on contraception, they cannot allow any exceptions to what it is they want, which is the absolutist defense of the revolution. So what I think especially Catholics and other believers need to understand is that those people are zealots, and they really believe it. And they feel this as deeply as traditional religious people feel their faith. But the difference is that in the United States of America, anyway, we had a lot of practice with people of different faiths living happily together, And the faith of this new progressivism that's based on the sexual revolution does not seem to indicate any desire at all to go along and get along. It, I am convinced, does not want to coexist peacefully with traditional Christianity. It wants to triumph over it. Not really a a big tent option. No, and it's where a lot of the rancor in our politics comes from. You know, we all 
wring our hands about siloing and the lowered standard of discourse, etc. But part of what is driving this is that the side of secularist progressivism is not a rational side. It is moved by faith and quasi-religious fervor. And it sees competing religions as problems to the realization of the world that it wants, which is a world in which the sexual revolution goes unquestioned and teachings like those in Humanae Vitae are put on the wrong side of history. So what of the idea that contraception and the sexual revolution have increased women's happiness and fulfillment? Is there any truth at all to that claim? It's a very complicated ledger. There's no doubt about it. On the 40th anniversary of Humanae Vitae, uh, I cited a particularly arresting essay that examined survey evidence, not only from the United States, but also from Europe across various waves of time. And it was called The Paradox of Declining Female Happiness by two economists again. And these economists found to their surprise that it looked as if women were growing less happy over time. Well, how could that be? After all, the researchers said they have more education, they have more freedom, they have contraception, they have abortion. Why would this be? And I think the answer to that has become clearer over time as well. It is that the sexual revolution absolutely made short-term pleasure easier for anyone who wanted it. On the other hand, it made long-term happiness harder to get for reasons that those economists, again, explain perfectly well. Once the marketplace is flooded with possible partners, hardly anybody wants to settle down and have a family. And to this day, almost all women, and for that matter, many men, would say what makes them happiest in life is having and keeping a family. This is what the revolution has gotten in the way of big time. So there is that element to consider of the record when it comes to measuring happiness. And then there are other ways of measuring it, too, of course. Everyone knows it's easier for young women to go to college and stay in college, to become doctors, to postpone family and childbearing, etc. And no one, contrary to the caricature of secularist progressives, no one is trying to say they should stay home and be barefoot um, and breed like rabbits. But we do have to think about the fact that happiness, this long-term thing, has become more elusive. And at some point, to ask the question, has the money been worth it? Has the extra money been worth it? Not saying there's a one-size-fits-all answer to that. But at some level, this kind of question about didn't the pill make everybody happier does intersect with the question of, well, there's material happiness and other happiness, so which kind are we talking about here? I'm, I'm intrigued by this because, of course, at the very first question, I said, tell us about yourself. And you define yourself. You said, well, my vocation is I'm a wife and a mother. In relation, defining ourselves in relation to others as social animals, it's Aristotelian. It's it's Thomistic. It's at its core. It's what humans are. It's also the case that if other animals, especially other mammals, lived the way we do, we would see immediately that there's something wrong with this. Mm. 
So, you know, in the new essay, in First Things, I get into some of the really sad outliers uh, in this new post-pill world, and that is the, all of the isolated elderly in all the advanced countries of the West, the explosion in sociology of what are called loneliness studies, and other examples of how this looks from the other end of time's telescope. And it looks very sad. Well, we're social creatures, as you just said. And we know this about other animals. For example, the reason why elephants won't be used in circuses anymore is that over time, given data and given studies, we understand them as profoundly social creatures who suffer in isolation from one another. And the same is true of many other mammals. You can't even buy, as I found out because of my children, a female gerbil at a pet store in isolation from another female gerbil. Because if you don't have two female gerbils or a female and male, a single, a solitary female will die in isolation from other gerbils. Mm. Well, my point is only if we can see this about gerbils and we can see it about elephants, why can't we see what we're doing to ourselves by living in this atomized way as if we were social isolates and we're all going to be okay on account of that. That's anthropologically perverse. There's no other word for it. It's just wrong. It's not true to what we are. And that also, I think, Humani Vitae and related documents get at in a really beautiful way, which is that we are related to each other and dependent on each other for our well-being. The pill interrupted all of that. Well, in How the West Really Lost God, you presented historical and sociological research that illustrate how secularization has had deleterious effects on both the family and on the Christian faith, leading to an increasingly unstable social order. Your work is really in harmony with that of other thinkers such as Alistair McIntyre, Wendell Berry, Patrick Deneen, Rod Dreyer, and, and a chorus of others. What, in your view, can be done to stem the tide of social decline? If anything, is there hope? Of course there's hope. And again, I speak not as a theologian or a philosopher or someone in religious orders. Uh, Quite the opposite. There is hope for a number of reasons, I think. The first reason is what we were just talking about, the falseness of the way many people live, the inauthenticity the failure of the revolution to deliver on its promises of happiness. The longer this experiment goes on, the clearer it becomes that for a lot of people out there, things have gone badly amok. They don't understand it. Look at the anger that swelled up that's behind the populism, for example, not only in the United States, but in Europe. Mm -hmm. And of course, some of that is authentically about the economy and about not having jobs as good as the jobs that used to be in certain places. But I come from rural America, and I know it's about more than that. It is also about this great disruption, as Francis Fukuyama put it. It's about the fact that people could accept a modest standard of living if they had other things in their lives that were making them happy, but the brokenness out there is profound, whether you're an unemployed opioid addict or whether you are a CEO wondering why all the money in the world doesn't buy you happiness. And I think one great reason for hope is that more and more people can see this. I think we're seeing this with the 
millennials and younger generation especially. They've moved in a pro-life direction. Whatever they're about, they have a hunger for authenticity that is tremendous. We see this in their political views, which are all over the map, but whatever they feel, they feel it strongly, and they just want someone to tell them the truth. Now, to a generation like that, that is more neo-pagan than catechized, I think the truth of Humanae Vitae and related teachings is potentially something that could ignite. And I mean ignite on the level of a new great awakening. These younger generations are already primed. They're looking for something to believe in. They're looking for something that is in conformity with nature. They have this great love for nature. It's part Mm -hmm. of why they love Pope Francis when he talks about the need to take care of the earth. It obviously resonates with a lot of younger people, especially on the deepest level. Well, that concern could easily extend to taking care of our own human moral ecosystem and our own patch of ground or our own little platoons, starting with the littlest platoon of the family. So I think if anything, precisely because things have gotten as bad as they have since 1968 and earlier, there are a lot of people who are open to the message of these teachings in a way that many people were not in 1968 before they could see what would happen. And that, I think, is very encouraging. Well, Mary Eberstadt, thank you for leaving us with that hopeful note. Thank you for having me. Thank you to Mary Eberstadt. Check the show notes for a link to the YouTube video of her lecture, The Prophetic Power of Humanae Vitae. You can learn more about the Center for Ethics and Culture by visiting ethicscenter.nd.edu. You can subscribe to Ethics and Culture Cast, which is released every other Thursday during the academic year, by visiting ethicscenter.nd.edu slash podcast. Please rate the podcast on Apple Podcasts, and don't forget to tell your friends. Our theme music is I Dunno by Grapes, licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution License. We'll see you next time on Ethics and Culture Cast. Until then, make good decisions. Thank you.